A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Heko nae purangi te nei na te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. There's only a handful of places throughout the world that have been able to detect these changes, who've been doing these careful, meticulous measurements for long enough to see the change. And on this transect, the Munida Time Series transect, we're one of the few places in the Southern Hemisphere where we've been doing it long enough to measure that. Kia ora. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerk and Cannon Thane. This week, we joined Dr. Kim Curry of Niwa on a well-travelled journey for her. This is a trip she has taken probably around 140 times now to fill many bottles with seawater. I've been doing it for 20, what have I been doing it for? 23 years, six times a year at least, probably at the beginning we were doing it more often. And then just a variety, so yeah, hundreds, I would say hundreds. I probably could calculate, yeah, so a lot. So the Munida time series involves taking surface water samples along a straight line transect to investigate ocean chemistry, starting at a point 65 kilometers off the coast of Dunedin. But that happens later, on our way back towards land. On the way out, it's an opportunity for others. It's a good platform, both a physical platform, but also an infrastructure platform that as many different people as possible can come and do their work at the same time as me, as long as they don't impact on my work. So I can share my data with them and allow them to give context to their work. And it will enable particularly students, but not only students, to do shorter term programs to investigate particular aspects of marine science that they're interested in, but put it into a larger framework. And I really like that part of it. I like seeing young people come along and, you know, they're starting their research careers and some of them start off, they're not doing so well at the start, they might be getting a bit sick and the data that they get to start with is not so good, but then it progresses and they end up getting their master's degree or their PhD degree, they've done some useful research and then they go on all around the world to do all sorts of amazing things. And all of these things that they're, um, they're doing then just adds to the richness of this Munida time series. And the measurements that I'm making, although I'm making them to look at the role of the ocean and the carbon cycle and ocean acidification, these fundamental measurements can then be used by just a huge variety of different types of people. So over the years we've had people looking at phytoplankton and zooplankton and trace metals and kelp and birds and marine mammals and diverse range. And this journey is no different. We have a variety of things to investigate on the way out. Now, one of the things that makes this particular transect so interesting to researchers is because of the different types of water it crosses. Eric Johnson, who's doing his PhD in physical oceanography, explains. Basically here you get uh, subtropical waters that sit over the continental shelf inshore, and then subantarctic waters offshore. And where these two water masses meet off the coast here, you get really strong uh, current and we don't necessarily understand the dynamics of this current, how it changes um, between like day to day, month to month. 
So my research is focused on the different things that drive that current, how it might change, and how that affects chlorophyll, which is primary productivity. So however this front supports that productivity dictates how the ecosystem off the coast here flourishes. Eric has used a shortcut here in language. He takes chlorophyll measurements because they will be found in phytoplankton, the plants of the ocean, as well as cyanobacteria. These are the primary producers that can photosynthesize. So higher chlorophyll readings means more phytoplankton, means more productivity. Eric is particularly interested in the structure of the front where these two water masses meet and how it changes in response to wind direction. So generally denser waters are sitting on the bottom, uh, lighter waters are on the surface, lighter waters are generally warmer and less salty, whereas cooler and saltier waters will sit on the bottom. But sometimes, as with the front here, you get cases where you have like a sharp gradient between two different water masses, where you can clearly say this one is subtropical, this one's subantarctic and that's what we're looking for. And basically how that gradient is structured. Is it more vertical, where you have like a really strong and obvious, this is subtropical, this is subantarctic? Is it more kind of tilted over, where it's diffuse and you can't necessarily distinguish as clearly? So all of that has important implications for the mixing of the water and that chlorophyll. To do this, he will work with the crew on board to lower a CTD instrument over the side of the boat at different stopping points, before and after the front, to allow him to get a picture of the shape of it using the data. So this here is the CTD. That stands for uh, conductivity, temperature, and depth. Conductivity basically being salinity. But in addition to those, this has a fluorometer, which measures the fluorescence of the water, which uh, is a proxy for chlorophyll concentration and then it also does dissolved oxygen. So it's connected to this big metal cable here. It's capable of going up to a kilometer deep. Um, we're only going to be going to about 250 meters or so. But yeah, it's a real fancy instrument. It logs the data in real time, feeds it back up this cable, and we can look at a computer on board and see how it's going. At each stopping point, a large winch lowers down the cage with the CTD in it, with the ship's crew keeping an eye on the equipment as Eric studies the live data coming through, ready to signal when they get to the right depth. So how is it looking now, Eric? Pretty neat. Uh, basically, you see this temperature curve that's fairly vertical for the upper 20 meters, and then there's a big change, and then it drops down. And where that big change is, is also where you're seeing a chlorophyll maximum. So once I look at this data later, what I reckon we're going to see is that this is subtropical water sitting on top, and then probably subantarctic water sitting beneath, and where they're meeting is where you see that chlorophyll spike. And that's due to the nutrient profiles of the different water masses. Um, basically, subtropical water is generally nutrient depleted, uh, for stuff like nitrate and phosphorus, whereas uh, subantarctic water is rich in that. So where they meet, you have all the nutrients required to get phytoplankton blooms. But yeah, you can see the uh, chlorophyll concentration drops off pretty sharply, and then by the time you're at 100 meters, there's basically not much going on. 
That's because generally about 100 meters is your photic depth where you actually get light and then beyond that there's not really enough light for phytoplankton to do very well. Eric is not the only person on board with an eye on phytoplankton. Well, I'm Jordan Sparrow and we're out in the Polaris collecting seawater samples at each of the eight stations and we're going to be analysing the phytoplankton community composition and structure. Jordan is about to start his master's in marine science, looking at drivers of phytoplankton blooms in the Otago Harbour. Today, he is helping and learning from botany PhD student Hannah Hendricks. Towards the back of the boat, near where the winch to lower the CTD is, Hannah and Jordan have set up what looks like a highly modified chilli bin with bottles lined up inside that have filters on top and tubes and a pub connected. At every station I take three types of water samples. The main sample is what I use the equipment for. So it's about three liters of water that I filter from each station and I collect it all on a small filter. And that filter I then freeze straight up here on the boat and then take it back to the lab and then wait until I can extract it and do uh, DNA sequencing on it. So you run the water through the filter, the filter collects all the phytoplankton and that's what you're interested in? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And then I got two other water samples that I also take, one to look at the very small size phytoplankton and then another one to look at a, bit, a little bit bigger size, yeah. Hannah will then run these two other samples through flow cytometry and a flow cam. These will give her an estimation of the number of phytoplankton present and the size profile of the groups of phytoplankton that are there, as well as pictures of them. Hannah has taken over this sampling from a previous student, and now she is passing on the duties to Jordan so that this data collection can continue. One student before me started taking the samples, so he did about two years, two and a half years, and I added another three years. So we have a full, the data set that I'll be using is five years. So it's, it's a lot, <laughs> but it'll be quite, quite a nice data set to work with, yeah. And when you have that data set of all of your evidence about what phytoplankton are in the samples and the numbers of phytoplankton in the, yeah. in the samples, what are you comparing that with? What questions are you asking? So originally we wanted to see if we could ask the question of how ocean acidification impacts these phytoplankton, but even though five-year data set is quite big, it won't be enough to actually look at ocean acidification. So hopefully this data set continues and a student uh, in the future in over like 10 years time, they can actually answer that question. But for now, I will mainly just be looking at how the phytoplankton specifically change with the different water masses that we look at and also if they've changed in time already. So like the nice thing is with DNA sequencing, I can kind of identify the species, what types are they and are they specific to water mass. But then with the cell sizes that I'm be looking at, it'd be nice to see if maybe over this five years span of time, if we see change of maybe from going from bigger cells to smaller cells, because the, I'm pretty sure that we were, would have already seen a change in the ocean over the five years. Also on the boat is Pluto Liu, who is here to collect samples of kelp to bring back to the lab she works in. As we travel along, if Pluto or the crew spot some kelp, we pull over and hook it in over the side so that she can take a sample for later DNA analysis. Basically the kelp, they can travel all around the ocean, the southern ocean, around, so you can find them in Chile, 
or they might just come from New Zealand or Australia or even sub-Antarctic islands. So we basically want to find out where they come from and are the microbiome community are the same or different. So that's what's going on down on the main deck as we make our way out to sea. But there's still more happening up top where the birders are. Well, we just stopped to collect a water sample at 30 kilometres offshore. We're on a ridge between two canyons and the seabirds are coming in to see if we're providing any food opportunities. This is Graham. So I'm Graham Lowe. I'm well and truly retired now and I've always loved the sea. I was brought up on a surf beach in Sydney and I had a long career in the wildlife service and then the Department of Conservation. But the seabirds has always been a hobby. Graham is sitting on top of the wheelhouse, wrapped up warm against the breeze. As the boat idles, he points out the different birds that we can see. There's uh, white-chinned petrels, sooty shearwaters are flying by, they don't come to the boats. Salvin's mollymawk, which is a small albatross, white-capped mollymawk, and um, some southern royal albatross. And we've got one black-backed gal also hanging around having a look. But uh, there's some several interesting birds we've seen. And this is the interesting mixing zone where the currents are stirred up by the canyons and the ridges between the canyons. And so I've just seen a Wilson storm petrel and I'm seeing small flocks of about 10 fairy prions, which always gives me pleasure. You've been coming out here for many of the, the voyages. Yes, I got permission from uh, Kim to come out and collect bird samples and so I started that in 2011 and I've been trying to get to each of the six voyages a year. I haven't managed all of them but I've done more than 30 of them. What in particular are you looking for? Are you trying to spot every species of bird, count every species of bird or are you looking for something I'm trying to see what the patterns are, the seasonal patterns and also the distance patterns, the different parts of the ocean. So I've broken it up, the 64 kilometre transit, I've broken it up into five kilometre units and I do a species list for each unit of five kilometres and a minimum number of individuals. In other words, at a glance I can see five, six, seven Cape Pigeons. So that's the number for this spot. What are the typical kinds of birds that you would spot? Mostly it's the albatross, and typically we'd get seven species, but I've had ten species, ten different species of albatross in a day. We just don't appreciate just how special and how rich New Zealand is. I mean, most people would be pretty pleased with two species of albatross. Sitting alongside Graham, with binoculars and iPad for collecting data at the ready, is Brazilian PhD student Nico Douch. He, like Graham, is interested in the patterns of what birds there are along the length of the transect and at different times of year. We have all these sorts of different environments, you know, before the front, the front part, and then after the front, the ocean water. So we might find some difference in which species are more associated with these types of environments. So my PhD has three main data sets. One is from Munida, uh, another one is from Northland. So we, we carry out some transects off Cape North. And also I've got a data set from Australia, actually. The bird team is rounded out with Oscar Thomas, a second year undergraduate zoology and ecology student. And Oscar is armed with a camera equipped with a very large lens. He's helping with spotting and identifying birds. So contributing to the data collection. But 
mostly here for the love of birds. I go out on the Polaris water sampling transects to count the birds, take photos of them, see how many seabirds we can see and what species and um, how it changes throughout the year. So how did the first trip happen for you? Um, I asked him very nicely several times and eventually we worked out the right channels for me to do it since it's not through research, I'm just sort of lucky to be here and it was an amazing experience and I got invited back. How many have you been on? This is probably the fifth one. Yeah, I haven't missed one yet. I can rearrange everything around them. I mean, they're long days and we got nice weather today, but I presume it's not always like that. No. What yeah. keeps you coming back out of your own free time? Well, yeah, we've been out for nearly 12 hours now. I had to wake up at before 5 a.m. to even get out here. So it's a pretty intense day, but I, I just love it. It doesn't feel like it's been that long. Um, it just flies by for me. So it's a busy boat as we head offshore. Eric takes his CTG measurements. Hannah and Jordan are filtering seawater for phytoplankton. Pluto scrapes samples from any kelp we find. And Graham, Nico and Oscar are busy identifying, counting and noting seabirds. And while all this is happening, Kim is getting ready. Because once the boat reaches the end of the 65-kilometre trip offshore and turns around, it's her time. On the way back, the ship won't stop because she takes surface water samples as we go. A large blue bin is roped to the side of the deck, with a pipe bringing water into it and water flowing out back into the ocean. And inside it is another CTD instrument. Kim explains how the system is set up to allow her to take a whole bunch of measurements on the fly. So in this bin here, we're measuring the temperature and the salinity of the water. So we've got a pump down in the engine room, which is pumping water into a scientific supply. And then that water gets diverted to a range of different instruments. So one of them is measuring the temperature and the salinity. One of them is measuring oxygen in the water, the dissolved oxygen. Then we've got measuring pH in the surface water. There's measuring dissolved carbon dioxide in the surface water. And then we're taking um, on another branch of that water supply, we can fill bottles. So there's a hose that we can just fill bottles. And in that, we're taking um, oxygen bottle to calibrate that sensor. And I'm taking DIC and alkalinity, which are also parameters associated with ocean acidification. And we're taking um, nutrient samples and samples to filter for a chlorophyll concentration. So that's kind of the bigger picture, I suppose, of what, what all the different parts are. Sounds like a lot, right? But remember, Kim is well practiced. The engine slows and stops, and we bob for a bit with some albatrosses beside us, taking some water samples. The end point for some, the start point for Kim. This is the first of nine sites along the transect where she takes bottled water samples. So I'm taking water samples and I'm adding some preservative as well. Why add preservative? I'm measuring carbon dioxide chemistry, so I don't want any processes happening in the bottle that are going to change that before I analyse it back in the lab. So um, any phytoplankton in the, in the sample are going to photosynthesise and so they'll use up some of the carbon dioxide. And if there's any um, thing that's respiring, any animals in there, they'll produce carbon dioxide and I don't want that either. And so I'm um, stopping that activity. 
So that means when I analyse what's in this bottle, hopefully it will be the same composition as what it is right here where I'm collecting it. Yeah, so we'll analyse these when we get back over the next little while. So we have the water samples to analyse and we also have all the data that we're analysing. So basically, you know, dealing with the data files, numbers. And are you starting to see trends? Are you seeing changes in the ocean acidification parameters across the time that you've been doing this? Yeah, so we've been measuring the chemistry here since 1998 and we've seen that the waters here are getting more acidic. And the reason for that is because it's taking up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere that's been released by fossil fuel burning. So the rate of acidification here is similar to what has been seen in other parts of the world, open ocean sites, which are quite different from ours. So the only thing that they have in common really is that they've got the same atmosphere over the top of them. So that's the that's the driver that's changing the pH in common at all of these sites. So here in the um, off New Zealand, similar to what they're seeing in off Hawaii, off Bermuda, in the Iceland Sea. So yes we're seeing we're seeing the waters acidifying. Oops, yeah. It's very slow and there's a lot of variability, so we have to make really careful measurements for a long time in order to be able to see, uh, pull out the trend. And then it's important that what we're measuring here is then able to be combined with the measurements that people are doing in other parts of the world. So that means we have to be very careful with the methods that we use, that what we are doing is comparable to what they're doing, so that the data can be collated and pulled together to get a global picture. The boat gets back underway. And as we steam back to shore, Kim falls into a well-practiced rhythm, filling bottles on the go when the boat reaches certain GPS points, adding the preservative, taking measurements, and checking the instruments are working as they should. As she works, I talk to her a bit more about what makes the Munida time series so important and useful, that long-term data set and the consistency with which the data is collected. So these time series, of which there's not that many in the world, just need someone with, or a program that's going to go out regularly to the same place, doing the same thing, more or less, and if they change it, they have to carefully characterise the change in order to detect really small differences in amongst natural variability. Because what we're measuring, it varies naturally from summer to winter, from one year to the next, from an El Nino year to a La Nina year, to there's lots, lots of variability, and it varies between inshore coastal waters and then mid-transect waters and the waters out at the far end. And so we've got a lot of that variability that's going on all the time, and so we're looking for a, any tiny little change on top of that. So that requires us to measure very, very carefully and very consistently and very accurately. And people are doing this all around the world in different locations. Um, there's not many in the southern hemisphere. And the variability is greater in the coastal regions. There's more things that are affecting the, um, the carbon chemistry in the coastal region than there is in the open ocean. And so these changes that have been seen, how the ocean is becoming more acidic, is being seen in open ocean places, not yet in the coast, because we haven't been measuring long enough to, to tease out this small change. 
Kim, her colleague Judith Murdoch, and a whole bunch of collaborators around the country are currently working on this problem of investigating coastal ocean acidification by setting up an extensive sampling network. As part of the New Zealand Ocean Acidification Observing Network, partners take ocean samples in the exact same way at different places around New Zealand and then send them to Dunedin to be analysed. Because, Kim says, ocean acidification changes the chemistry and causes problems for critters both out in the open ocean and in coastal waters too. So you can do budgeting and we find out that the amount of carbon dioxide that's been putting into the atmosphere from human activities, about half of it is staying in the atmosphere and causing um, global warming. About a quarter is taken up by the oceans and the rest is taken up by the land sink. So the carbon dioxide that is taken up by the oceans, it reacts with the water in a series of um, chemical reactions that um, change the pH of the water, but also the concentration of other species, chemical species, and in particular the carbonate iron. And the carbonate iron is important for animals and plants that uh, use calcium carbonate in building their structure. So in the coast there's things like shellfish, um, corals, and in the open ocean it's more like um, plankton with um, calcium carbonate shells called coccolithophores. So oceans normally have carbon in them. That is a normal thing. We need that carbonate ion so that the shellfish and the plankton can make their little calcium carbonate skeletons. But the issue is that now that there's more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, there's more being dissolved into the ocean and we're seeing that change. That's right, and it's not just that it's more, it's that it's happening fast, really fast. Okay. So the oceans aren't able to keep up and to re-establish an equilibrium. So the absolute change is large on the great scheme of things, but also the rate of change is large, greater than what we've seen for thousands and thousands of years. Kim started collecting this data back in 1998, when people didn't even know about ocean acidification. At the time, she was interested in the role of the oceans off New Zealand in the carbon cycle, how carbon moves between the land and the air and the ocean. And no one had taken this kind of ocean chemistry data before in New Zealand. So one of the things that's really important then is that what we measure here is put out into an international context. And that is not just useful for people living and working and eating seafood in New Zealand, that it then goes into um, establishing what the global picture is. So we do that by making sure that we make our measurements in a way that is uh, consistent with other people around the world who are making the measurements, that we put our data and our information into international databases where it's combined with the um, information other countries and other scientific programs. So that kind of, that global connection is, is critical, I think. The fact that you've got people all around the world who are studying in their particular areas, but then pooling the data to see what the oceans and what the globe is, how it's responding as On a whole. the big picture scale. Yeah, the big picture level. So that's part of it I really enjoy too, collaborating with people around the world. It's very collaborative. There's not much protecting your patch. It's in everyone's interest to share their data. And so the community is really open. And what's more, more than open, they're actually encouraging. We need people to be measuring these things in 
diverse parts of the globe. In the face of increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide, this consistent, well-collated data set is now an important one, globally, used in recent IPCC reports as part of the evidence that our oceans are indeed changing. So Kim has spent years doing this important ocean chemistry work on the Munida transect. As we neared the harbour after a long day, there seemed to be just one important question left to ask. And from Kim, a wonderfully positive answer. How much longer should the transect go? Uh, this is, th- these questions are really interesting. In some ways, it's how long is a piece of string. But as I think it's becoming um, important again, as the global community is looking to reduce the carbon dioxide emissions, then hopefully the atmospheric carbon dioxide is going to level off and who knows into the future will will decrease. So how will the oceans respond to that? I think we need to to know that. We need to be able to measure it and we we need to be able to verify that if we're changing our behaviour by going, decreasing our fossil fuel use or whatever it is, we need to be sure that that's actually impacting the environment, that it's having the, um, the consequence that we intend. So in order to see that, you need to keep measuring. So in some ways, it's a, you know, it's a job for life. Thanks to Dr. Kim Curry, Eric Johnson, Hannah Hendricks, Jordan Sparrow, Graham Lowe, Nico Douch, Oscar Thomas and Judith Murdoch. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast platform. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld from photos from the Polaris 2, as well as links to some other great Our Changing World episodes about ocean acidification, carbon dioxide and the carbon cycle. You can also sign up to our monthly newsletter there. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.